0: Turn with me to the book of Daniel as we continue to work through the book of Daniel. We started studying Daniel last week and we'll continue that this week. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 21 of chapter 1. So you can go ahead and turn there. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him again in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word this morning... We come to the word of our resurrected Lord. Not everyone can claim that title, only you. God the Son. And these are your words here for us today. Because they are your words, we are subject to them. We ought to obey them. And they are the words of life for our souls. So, Lord, we pray that you would use these words to open our hearts and our minds, even to quicken those parts of us that are hardened or have even become dead. We pray, Lord, that you would open your word to us, that you would use it to change your people. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as we come to Daniel chapter one and looking at the rest of chapter one today and today being Easter Sunday, it was an interesting kind of crossover. The Christian world celebrates the resurrection of Christ today. The rest of the world, perhaps even though they know that it's Easter, just sees it as another day or even perhaps sees it as an opportunity to do some social events concerning the holiday of Easter. We all know these events very well, right? Like Easter bunnies and gifts and egg hunts and all of them make no real sense concerning the resurrection of Christ. It doesn't mean they're not fun. All those things are fun. But Easter is a perfect example of how Christians should think much differently than the rest of the world. The resurrection of Christ is the single most important event in human history And as the church celebrates it, the rest of the world takes it as an opportunity to celebrate things like chocolate eggs that a bunny brings to their house. It just shows you the opposition. We move into the book of Daniel, we see that sharp distinction with how the world thinks about things and how we ought to, as Christians, think about the world. Daniel was going to be caught in the middle of a pagan culture, yet he must stick to God's word in order to find his way through that culture. What he discovers is that God had already gone ahead and guaranteed his success. We have that same kind of struggle in our world today. We aren't being forced into a particular culture like Daniel But the world or the pull of the world is still very strong for us as believers. And were it not for the Lord giving us success, we would not have it. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. As we work through this passage, we're going to deal with this idea of holy living in a hostile world and God's hand in that. And so we're going to break the text down into three main ideas. First, God gave favor. Secondly, God gave wisdom. And then lastly, God gave victory. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Daniel chapter 1 verses 3 through 21. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel chapter 1 verses 3 through 21. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor with the and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths that are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, tested them for ten days, and at the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and were, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for a little bit of context, before we get into the text, last week we spent some time building the context of the whole book, which essentially details man's plan versus God's plan. We see that very plainly as we go through this whole book, that man has a plan that seems right to him, but God ultimately has a plan. One of the major themes of Scripture is the idea that we're first presented with in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you've been coming here for any amount of time, you've heard me quote that verse Many times, that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That the people of God would have a continual adversary in their lives, the people of the world. And I want to be really careful here, because many can see this as kind of a militant call to action. That's not what we're being called to to do. Yet, we are called to make disciples of all nations baptizing them, teaching all that Jesus has commanded us. And I want to understand, too, that our war is not against flesh and blood. We studied that as we looked in the book of Ephesians, and we studied the last portion of Ephesians in Ephesians 6. But our war is against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. So as we go through this book, understand there is never a call to this kind of militant uprising. As As Christians or even as the church, though some personalities tend toward that, our Lord Jesus did not. He was just the opposite. He laid down his life so that others could be saved. He was an atoning sacrifice for his enemies. We cannot do that portion of Jesus' ministry, obviously, but we can handle God's enemies with care and compassion because they are lost. They are like sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't take, a, this doesn't take away the responsibility of the church to stand firm in the face of difficulty and error. Of course we should. And it is possible to be principled and not be a jerk. Just because we have strong convictions doesn't mean that we can now treat people unfairly or mock them. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Though he was in a position of absolute authority and dominance over them in all realms, he looked at them and had compassion on them. It would be wise to study Jesus' interactions with the lost. And as we study Daniel, we're going to get a picture of that as well, even in our text today. But I also want to be careful with that, because Daniel is not the object of our faith or our morality. But he definitely points us to the one who is. And Daniel's success had everything to do with the God that gave him success. And that brings us to the first point, God gave favor. Look with me again at verses 3 through 5. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's place. And to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And it goes on that the king assigned them a daily portion of their food and the wine that he, of his food and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years before they would stand before the king. This is Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, and he was a smart man. Whatever else he was, he was a smart man and he knew that in order to take over a people that he couldn't simply win those people with swords and with spears, which he had done up to this point, but he also had to win their hearts. And how do you win the hearts of someone that you've conquered and completely destroyed everything about them? No king has ever taken over a civilization and thought, well, I plan to give this back to them soon. This was just a temporary thing. No, the king... Sees his civilization as going on forever, even his own life as going on forever. He didn't want constant rebellion on his hand from the Jews. He had to take away what it meant to be a Jew in the first place. And what better way to do that than to strike at their vitality, to strike at their young people. Daniel and his three friends were probably around 16 or 17 when this story begins, according to Jewish traditions. They are referred to as youths in this passage a few times, so it helps us to kind of understand what's going on with that particular word. Daniel will live a long, full life, which we will read about, but his story begins he was just a teenager, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, had his eye on the youth of Israel. His plan was very simple. He intended to re-educate the young people among the Jews, and they would turn and use their education their new education on the older generation teaching them things they had never heard about basically breeding them out in the long term eventually there would rise a generation that didn't even know the name of the Hebrew God this is Nebuchadnezzar's plan and to make doubly sure of this they never heard the name of the Hebrew God ever again he had them change their names Daniel, Hananiah Mishael and Azariah, all having hints of the Hebrew name for God. Anytime you see that L like Daniel or Ah or Yah at the end, like Henaniah and Azariah, this is pointing to God, the Hebrew words for God. And so their names were changed to have Hebrew or to have Babylonian gods in them. Bel and Nego and Aku, Belteshazzar. Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, they were changed so that their own gods were completely gone from their own names. If you were going to take a group of people and you wanted to change them permanently, then you'd do what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here. It's been copied many times in the history of the world. You'd isolate them. You'd re-educate them. You'd make them choose between what they knew and their new reality. You'd insert confusion into their lives. You'd take them away from their culture. You'd teach them new things. You'd give them new things. And you'd even give them new words. It's very easy to draw a connection between Nebuchadnezzar's methods and the methods of society today and society of all days. Our day is no different than history in general. Why would Nebuchadnezzar do this? Again, I take you back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, the Lord speaking to the serpent. It shouldn't surprise us when the seed of the serpent acts in such a way to attempt to eliminate the people of God. But we should also expect then, when the serpent acting that way and will always continue to act that way until he's finally put away for all eternity, we should also expect that God is going to take care of his people. And that is exactly what we see here. Look again at verses 8 and 9. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel made a choice here. He chose not to defile himself with the food and the wine of Nebuchadnezzar. Why did he choose the food and the wine of Nebuchadnezzar? We don't really know why he chose this particular stand to make. Some have said many things. If you study this passage, you'll see lots of things, and you've probably heard lots of things over the years. Perhaps it was his... Jewish dietary laws that kept him from eating the food of Nebuchadnezzar, but we're not told anything about the food of Nebuchadnezzar here, or the wine. Perhaps it's the virtue of the vegetarian lifestyle that's at stake here. There's lots of things that I've heard, right? Uh, Or the fact that he had to drink alcohol and he was abstaining from that, or whatever. The facts are that we're not really told Daniel's reason to make a stand concerning the food and the wine. The simplest explanation is that This is one simple thing that Daniel could control. You can generally choose what to eat and drink unless your your mouth is being forced to open. And he might have this path of least resistance, but yet also being able to make a stand in his new setting. Learning new things in a new, in a new language don't have to be all that bad, but deciding what one would eat or drink is a nice and easy kind of relative stand to take. And it's not taking away from Daniel's choice, calling it easy. I'm just saying that this seems to be the point of least resistance. Daniel's not compromising in those other areas because we have no evidence to, to suspect that he did. But again, food and drink might be an easy place for him to say here and no further. But at the end of the day, We don't know why he chose these things. What we do know is that the Lord was, that the Lord honored his choice and that we read in verse nine that the Lord gave him favor with this eunuch that was placed over him. We know from our catechism that the Lord powerfully preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. And this Aspenaz is no different here. He had the favor on Daniel and when Daniel asked for an alternative, he was at least amenable to hear it. He feared what might happen. We read that, right? He was afraid. Well, I'm afraid that if I bring you different food that the king is going to have my head when he looks at you and he says, you guys aren't doing so well because you're not eating or drinking. That's why Daniel kind of gives him this test. And we see that as he goes as he goes forward, right? He, he gives them this test that if you come back and look at us and we'll be better off than the other people who are here. He has compassion on Ashpenaz. He said he said to him he said uh, verse 11 Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so Daniel had compassion, his pagan enemy. He was going to still be able to do his job, right? But Daniel was going to be given a chance in order to shine. And I think this is important for the church because Daniel here did not stand up and begin whining about his rights. He did not yell about anyone about his own culture in order to convince them because yelling is always a good way to convince people. He offered an alternative And the Lord gave him favor with the people there. He treated the people with dignity and respect. Much more than he would have been given otherwise. And they responded in kind. As we come to this text and we see the method of Nebuchadnezzar. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson said this. He said, somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price. And that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient bid for a soul. We don't know what became of the, became the rest of the Jewish people that had, were given under the care of Ashpenaz, but we do know that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself, that he did not have a price for his soul that he would not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of his mind. This passage is often taught to young people as they prepare to enter into the world, be it the next step of life, maybe university or the workplace or both. And if you don't think that those places aren't vying for your soul, you're crazy. They absolutely are, as everything is. They will sell you another God in a flash. And that other God is always faulty goods. Every single time. Because there's only one God. And he's unable to be imitated. Though many try. As we read in our passage today. And it's true. Our young people must absolutely resolve not to be defiled. Is what we read here from Daniel. Otherwise you will be. You have to resolve. It's a, it's an Active action its a positive thing that you must be doing because the passive action is to slowly become a Babylonian, slowly but surely, so much so that not even a trace of your Christian heritage will exist, and in so many cases proving that it was never there to begin with. Yet I want to caution the adults here as well, because it's really easy to point the finger at the youth and say, see, you need to be careful what people are teaching you. I want to caution the adults here, along with the young people, because next year we have an election year, right? And Ashpenaz will be resurrected, as he is ever so often, into the form of the news media. And Ashpenaz will parade a series of false gods in front of us, each of whom will claim to be our savior. And if we're not careful, we'll pick one and we'll defend them tooth and nail in the name of Jesus. And if we're not careful, nothing about our actions and our words concerning that new God will resemble Jesus at all. They'll begin to resemble the gods that we've chosen. And we'll slowly become a Babylonian right along with the rest of them. And I could pick anything, but that one in our day and age seems to be Most important, at any stage of our life, we are susceptible to this pull of the Babylonian. And as soon as we become passive, we become snagged. Pray to God that he would keep us resolute against defilement. That he would grant us favor among the world. So that we might win them to Jesus, the only Savior. That he would honor our choice and that he would continue to grant us wisdom. Which brings us to the next point. God gave wisdom. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and they were to, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel's plan was allowed and as a result the four boys flourished and they looked better than the other youth that were partaking in the Babylonian plan. We don't read anything about the languages and the literature that Daniel and his friends were partaking of at all. We don't know anything about that. The retraining wasn't just food and drink. It was a mind thing. Of course they were learning all sorts of philosophies and different things. And again, Make people comfortable, which is the food and the drink. Make people comfortable, and they'll probably buy whatever poison you're selling them. But God had plans. He had other plans for his people. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. Regardless of the plans of Nebuchadnezzar and all of his people, it was God ultimately that gave learning and skill and wisdom. The Lord was training up these men even in the midst of their Babylonian training. They had skill and language and literature and Daniel even comes away from this with gifts of visions and dreams which will come in handy in the coming years we're going to learn about the end of this indoctrination period, they walked away as strong men of God, unfazed by the world's attempts to draw them in. And they were so good, in fact, that we read in verses 18 through 20 that Nebuchadnezzar brought them in to be before him. And in verse 20, "...and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters." That were in his kingdom. And it wasn't because they weren't indoctrinated. They had been taught all these things by the Babylonian people, but the Lord used them and that he would be, that they would be used by this pagan king for his needs of understanding and wisdom. As a young minister, I was keenly aware of the way that people looked at ministry work started my ministry my vocational ministry as a youth director, not an ordained minister, but just working with the youth of a church but even then I was keenly aware of the way that people viewed my position in the church versus really anything else at all anything else in the out in the world ministry work in their mind was obviously a spiritual kind of thing, and they would often refer to my work in ministry as the lord's work, and anything else was just kind of also ran, just kind of unimportant. And if you aren't doing the Lord's work, you really aren't working. You're just kind of settling for something that's not as good. But what Daniel shows us here is that nothing could be further from the truth. Daniel was working for a pagan king who had taken the sacred things of God and had mingled them among his own things. He was working for a pagan king who destroyed the temple and burned Jerusalem and slaughtered Jews by the thousands. And yet he distinguished himself so much so that he was ten times better than the pagan magicians and the enchanters. The pagan king Nebuchadnezzar valued a man of God above his fellow pagans. And we think the Lord can't use our work. That he can't use anything at all to do whatever he pleases. Many of you know that I teach school right down the road here at Murray High School. And teaching school has been the single most rewarding work of my life. Because what it has shown me more and more is that the Lord is continually able and willing to show his goodness and ability to take something bad, me, and do His work with it. Many times Christians who aren't working in full-time ministry see their lives as less than fulfilling because they aren't doing quote-unquote the Lord's work. And let me caution you with that idea because it's not true. Because it's quite possible to be in vocational ministry and be doing no work at all. And it's possible to be in any secular line of work and be doing an incredible work of the Lord. It's the Lord of alone who grants wisdom and skill and he will be glorified. And in that we can be guaranteed. We only need to be faithful to what he commands. And that is to do the work that he has set before us. And this goes for our children as well. And the Lord can use this. And I think it's important to note this as probably several of us are thinking about it at this point as we have these, these kids who are taken into this pagan school and taught new things that the Lord can use any school choice to do His will. Public school, Christian school, homeschool, all things in between, the Lord is able to protect His people and honors the faithfulness of His people in all realms by growing them in wisdom and skill. The opposite of this is true as well. That simply avoiding all things worldly doesn't guarantee a godly product. We have to be careful. This is why we preach the gospel at all times, because Jesus is who separates us from the world ultimately, not our school choice. It is Jesus who guarantees victory, who guarantees success. We can cram law into a wicked heart, but it will still despise the law and ultimately the law giver. A wicked heart doesn't need the law. It needs life. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the only way to the Father. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, he can guarantee eternal life to anyone who calls upon his name. The Babylonians weren't going to be saved if they just looked at Daniel and dared to be like him. They needed Jesus. The world doesn't need our morality. You've heard me say that many times. They need Jesus. The message of Daniel isn't that the vegetarian lifestyle or abstinence from alcohol are ways to please God. God granted Daniel favor and wisdom because God would be glorified even in Babylon. He used Daniel toward his ultimate ends. The message of Daniel is that Jesus saves. If you're here today and you haven't heard that, then today is the day Jesus can take your heart of stone and make it alive. Without faith in Jesus, you cannot please God. But by faith, you can be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. For the believer who is here, we are called to live as Daniel lived. Not because Daniel did it, but because God commands it. In a pagan world, this can be difficult at best and even cause us to lose hope. But notice we have hope here at the end of this passage. That brings us to the last point. God gave victory. Look at verse 21. And Daniel was, was there until the first year of King Cyrus. We may be wondering, what's going on? Why is this guy Cyrus being mentioned? And why do we need to know that Daniel was there all this time after just reading about him being a boy and refusing to drink wine and eat whatever Nebuchadnezzar was offering? Cyrus wasn't another Babylonian king. He was a Persian king. Another pagan, yet prophesied from Isaiah's day to deliver the people of God from Babylonian captivity. And Daniel lived to see it, which means that the Lord is faithful and faithful to give Daniel a long life. It might be easy to... For us to lose hope when we look at the day-to-day in our, in our living day-to-day in this world, sometimes we might even think that we have to turn to earthly princes in order to find a modicum of salvation for today because we forget that the end has been decided, that victory has already been guaranteed. We read Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between your seed and hers... And we might get stuck there and wonder, how is this going to end? But if we just read a little bit further in that verse, we read that he will crush his head. These are words the serpent in Genesis. Jesus gets the victory. These are words for us today. Jesus Christ wins. Daniel longed to see the day of his deliverer. He saw his earthly deliverer, Cyrus, come into the city. And deliver the people of God. And he longed to see the day of Jesus Christ. His true redeemer. And that's the reality of the situation. Because Daniel is right now. With the Lord Jesus. Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father. Alive and well. Because he is risen from the dead. And Daniel knows his hope fulfilled in Jesus today. Brothers and sisters in the church, while the world is difficult and against us, take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Let us go into the world then and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all that he commands and watch and see as he gives us rest for our souls. As he gives us favor and help in the midst of our ministries and watch as he alone receives glory for the work that he's doing in us. Let's go to him in prayer.